Great job. That is a Michael Simmons original song written uh, a few years ago, as he said, for uh, one of those moments that we were creating in worship. And uh, over the course of a lifetime, yeah, Michael is my favorite songwriter and um, has written a number of songs that have become part of the soundtrack of my life and my journey. Uh, and I know for many of you the same thing. And so that does make sense. It does tie into what we're talking about today very, very well. And if you have your Bibles, Go to the Old Testament. We're going to the book of Judges, 6 and 7, two chapters. We're going to look at a big story. Uh, I'll break it down for you, so find a way to kind of open your Bibles up so you can follow along. But we're continuing our Indiana Jones-themed adventure series and talking about how do we become the people that we were created to be? How do we embrace this life that Jesus has for us? How do we take that journey that is uniquely ours and, and become a hero, if you will, uh, that God has created us to be. And so today we're going to talk about um, going from zero to a hero. Zero to hero is the title of our Bible study. And we're going to use a story this morning that you may be familiar with, but before I do, I want to clean up a couple of things um, that we need to do. Uh, We have people that watch us, listen to us uh, from all over the world. They often will send me ideas, jokes, stories, and things like that. And from time to time, I have to clean some files out and share them with you. And so this, this is that moment. This comes from our online audience. What do you call a pig that does karate? Pork chop. Why do seagulls fly over the sea? Because if they flew over a bay, they'd be bagels. There's a man who every morning went down to the edge of his driveway to pick up the paper. As he did when the kids from the neighborhood riding his bike hit him, ran over him, ruined his paper, ruined his day. Guy went on Tuesday morning, same thing happened. Kid from the neighborhood riding his bike hit him, ran over him, ruined his day. Happened on Wednesday. Happened on Thursday. Happened on Friday. After five days of it, he was all banged up. He went to his doctor and he said, doctor, he goes, I don't know what's going on. He goes, well, you're caught in a vicious cycle. So much effort from that online crowd to share with you guys, and you guys really didn't appreciate it. The 9 o'clock crowd, though, they got it. They were into it, didn't they? They were uh, uh, different. So I fulfilled that promise. I have told those jokes. So keep those cards and letters coming. And don't worry, I'll tell them and get booed for you. All right. um, (laughs) We're continuing our series where, as we begin today, I want to share with you that there's a pattern that shows up in Scripture. Um. And this is something that today as we're talking about it. You know, this is where we kind of start getting that rubber meets the road, where, where you know, all this sounds good. The, the adventure sounds good. There's an excitement to it. You know, there's something uh, mysterious and romantic about that. But there's a moment where the rubber hits the road and you have to decide, am I going to do the things I need to do to be the person I was created to be? And so this passage, this story, is loaded with stuff that, you know, obviously... Uh, applies to our lives in the here and now, but it has volumes to say to people who call themselves followers of God, to those who really do have a desire to live out the adventure they're created for, uh, for those that really want to experience that fullness of life, that abundant life that Jesus paid such a high price for. What does it take to get that? 
And then more importantly, how do you get there from where you are now? The pattern that shows up over and over again in Scripture, and I don't necessarily like it, uh, or I don't, I mean, it's not out of like or dislike. It's just a pattern that shows up. Go back and read the stories. Go back and understand what's there. The pattern is simply this, that God often doesn't show up or intervene until the situation becomes humanly impossible. You ever notice that? God doesn't show up until 1159, and he needs to be there by midnight. There's something about the way that God operates, where when you begin to understand God, when you begin to know God, while we wish he would do it different, and we might desire for him to work differently, there's something about the character and nature of God that I think is a part of his personality. If I were going to summarize it, I'd simply say this, God loves the impossible odds. God loves it when the odds are impossible. The impossible is God's workshop. It's where he does some of the most amazing things. It's where he does some of the most amazing work. It's where he takes and chisels us into making us who uh, we were created to be. A few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that often we're faced with impossible situations. And when we look at them, we know that they're impossible for us. We absolutely know it's too big, it's impossible. Now, most people at that moment just kind of walk away. Uh, They don't ponder it anymore. They don't really pray through it. It's just impossible. They know it's impossible. It's just too big. But there are a few, few people who will see an impossible situation and at least pray over it. Say, God, what what am I missing in it? What do I need to see in the midst of this impossible situation? And when you begin to do that, all of a sudden the impossible isn't impossible anymore. It becomes improbable. I mean, you realize it's really complicated, and if things were going to happen, and a lot of things have to happen, a lot of moving pieces, but you begin to see that there's a path forward if God were to get involved in it. So the impossible of yesterday becomes the improbable task of today. But the more that you hone in on that improbable, the more you realize that if God has a hand in it, it's inevitable. And all of a sudden, what started as impossible became improbable, and now it's inevitable. It's going to happen because God does have a hand in it. All you have to do is decide you're going to be obedient. Do you choose to be a part of it? And I want you to know that the journey of your life is loaded with impossible moments. And there are impossible moments that could turn into improbable moments. And then inevitable moments if you're willing to do the right things in the right way at the right time. That is this story. That's what we're looking at this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Judges uh, chapter 6. I'm going to jump into it somewhere around verse 11, 12, somewhere in there. Um, And I'm going to start right here. It says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon said, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. It is a battle that's getting ready to take place. This is a great story about... A war. And getting ready for the battle, Gideon has been chosen by God to be the leader. 
last week, I shared with you just before you left that if you wanted to feel patriotic, there were some movies that I would suggest. One of the movies I suggested to you was Miracle, which is the story of the U.S. hockey team defeating the Russians in Lake Placid. Uh, the team coached by Herb Brooks played in the movie by Kurt Russell. The Russians at that time were an unstoppable, unbeatable hockey machine. And the American players were not even the best college players. They were just the group of guys that um, came from Minnesota and Boston that Herb Brooks chose to coach. And he chose to coach and take them and make them a team and put them in a position to win. The miraculous takes place in Lake Placid. And some of you have heard it. You know, that great line that Al Michaels screams when they win and beat the Russians. Do you believe in miracles? Yes, as they win the game. Impossible victory. In the movie, Kurt Russell, playing her Brooks, steps into the locker room when these young men are getting ready to play the biggest game of their life against a team that they cannot beat, and they're facing impossible odds. The speech that he gives is actually a speech that Herb Brooks gave in the locker room uh, before the U.S. team went out and played the Russians. He says this, great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you hear, have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we played them ten times, they would beat us nine. But not this game. Not tonight. Tonight we skate with them. Tonight we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight, you are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players, every single one of you, and you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's done now. Now, go out and take it. And he walks out of the locker room, and of course, the guys are speechless. They have nothing to say. They realize that this is the biggest moment of their life. For me, it made me want to be a hockey player. It is that moment where you realize that there is something that is so big and it is impossible, but for it to take place, it becomes a miracle. That's what we're reading about today. You just heard the setup to it. Gideon has an army of 32,000 men, and they're getting ready to fight the Midianites, and the Midianites have them outnumbered. There are a lot more Midianites than there are the nation of Israel. And the Lord says to Gideon, you have too many men. Now, Gideon's not dumb. Oh, sure, he comes from an alleyway place called Manasseh, but he's not dumb. And so he looks back at God in the loose translation and says, what are you talking about? Have you not seen the other side? Do you not know what's waiting for us? I have 32,000 men. We're way outnumbered now. What are we going to do? And God tells him what to do. And so Gideon is obedient. And again, in a loose paraphrase, he walks out to face his army of 32,000. He said, man, I know you are champions. I know you have a heart for God. I know that you believe in what we're doing and you know that it's going to be tough, but you also know that we can win but God wanted me to give you an opportunity, and he wanted me to tell you this. And so I'm telling you this, but I know that you don't want to hear it, but I'm telling you this anyway. If any of you are afraid, God says it's okay if you go home. 
two-thirds of his army went, shoot, we're going back to the house. And they walked off the hillside and left him there. I mean, he started with 32,000. Two-thirds of them went, we're out, scared. And I know that in Gideon's heart, as he watches those men walk away, his heart sinks. In Judges 7, verse 2 through 3, it says this, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me, that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. And so 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. His army had whittled down to 10,000. And then God looks at Gideon and says, Gideon? He says, yes, Lord. God says, you have too many men. What? We just did this dance. I started with 32,000, 22,000, then going back to the house. I only have 10,000, and we are still outnumbered in case you did not know that. And God says, I know. You need to whittle them down again. Verse 4 says this, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. And God devises a test. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to take the men and I want you to get them a drink. Take them down to the water's edge. Let them drink. And so Gideon, all right, go down. We'll go to water. Tell, takes them to the water's edge says, okay, guys, God said that he wants you all to take a drink. And then as Gideon is standing there, God, in essence, says to him, you keep an eye on them. Because anybody that takes a drink by putting their head down and putting it in the water, I don't want them. Send them home. And Gideon saying to himself, you lost your mind, God. We can't afford to lose another man. And then God says, and anybody that scoops the water up with their hands and laps it up like a dog, that's who we want. And Gideon says, God, you want a bunch of dog lapping water drinkers? And God says, yes. And so Gideon starts counting the guys that are left. And when he's done, he says, I'm going to count again, God. One more time. And when he's done, the 10,000 is now down to 300. We started at 32,000. We are now down to 300. <laughs> so Gideon took the men down to the water, it says in verse 5. And then the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. And 300 men lapped into their lapped from their hands into their mouth, and the rest got down on their knees to drink. 300 against all the Midianites. I'm not a military strategist, but I see the difficulty in going from 32,000 to 300. The rest of those folks are now, they're just going to watch this thing take place. Their love for nation, God, and their fellow man has now put them on the sidelines as spectators so 300 can go fight for the nation. If 
fight for God. My mentor and friend, Ken Smith, once preached a sermon I will never forget. He said, are you an audience or an army? And he says, basically, in this story of Gideon, all those soldiers that went home, all those that were afraid that went, they became the audience, and the 300 that were left were an army. And it begs the question, when it comes to the things of God, are you an audience or are you an army? See, it's one thing to talk about living the adventure. It's one thing about discovering who God created you to be. It's one thing about going out there and fighting those battles for God and becoming that person that's going to change and shape the world. But I've been around church a long, long time now. And here's what I know about church people, not you, but church people. It's happening in every church in Central Florida. Our culture promotes it. Even among the Christian culture, we promote it. We promote spectators. I told you last week, there's better shows a mile from here, either direction. You can always find somewhere to be entertained. And there are people that are looking for places to connect where they're entertained. The preacher looks the part. He wears his skinny jeans. You know the problem with pastor wearing skinny jeans? Some of them don't have the body to go in those skinny jeans. They got maxi bodies and skinny jeans. And that's a problem. And it takes more than skinny jeans and tattoos to make you a good teacher. But people don't know that. He's got the look. He looks the part. They sing the songs. That's the ones I hear on the radio. That's what I want to be. I thought the show was good. It's an audience. Rarely do they want to roll up their sleeves and go to work. Follow the crowd. 22,000 go home? I'm going to go with them. Because if they're going to watch, I'm going to watch too. Because I don't want to be out there. There's only 10,000 left. The guys that were lapping up the water like dogs... I'll bet you some of them said, you know, if I had to do it again, I'd put my head in that water. But there are 300 left, and the 300 left, and the reason, reason I did that, right, is because when you lap water like that, your, your, your eyes are up. You don't put your head in the water where you can't see. Somebody clunky in the head will drown you. If you're lapping, your eyes are up. You can see what's happening. You see the world as it is. You see what's coming. You see the culture around you. You see the things that are shaping all the events around you. And you're prepared to move, to engage, to do what you need to do. And that's who God says, I want in my army. See, we worship with the crowds. And we forget that when Jesus started his ministry, when I say started the church, actually, when he left to go back to heaven, he had less than 100 followers. They had left him in droves. And with that hundred, he said, you can change the world. See, we think more people, bigger, better. That's what we need. And here's a verse or passage of Scripture where God is whittling it down. And making it less and less. And so I ask the question again, are you an audience? Are you an army? See, because if you want to shape the world and have the life that God has for you, you have to decide, I'm willing to fight for that. I'll be an army. You have to decide, I'm not just going to be a spiritual spectator. I'm not around just to be entertained. I, I want to be used by God. I want to have that best life that God has for me. I want to be someone who does what I pray, what I act like I want. See, we pray it all the time. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. What do you do to make that happen? I mean, you have to want to just pray it, right? It means that you're going to do something and you're going to roll up your sleeves and you're going to use your giftedness and you're going to find out what God has called you to do and you're going to embrace it and you're going to do it. 
And so God has left Gideon with 300. And the 300 are going to go fight. <laughs> Let's go back to the passage. It says this. Dividing the 300 men into three companies. That'd be about 100 apiece. He placed trumpets and empty jars in the hand of all of them with torches inside. Now, again, I come back to a moment where if you're Gideon at this point, what do you want? You want spears. You want bows and arrows. You want tanks. You want military weaponry that will overwhelm the Midianites. And God says, take trumpets and some mason jars. <laughs> empty mason jars. That'll be enough. And again, Gideon's got to look back and go, really? This is how we're going to fight this battle? Yes. Bad enough I started with 32,000. Bad enough we got whittled to 10. Bad enough I got 300. Now I'm arming them with jars. Seriously, God. Jars and trumpets. And God says that's enough. And here's the kicker. Israel wins. They surround the Midianites, they blow the trumpets, uh, they, they jiggle the jars, and the next thing you know, these dog-lapping guys are, are, are whipping up, the Midianites are running, and Israel routes them. God wins. With an army. Not an audience. See, we live in a world, if you don't realize it, that this is a post-Christian culture. We have lost the culture. We lost the culture because we watched it happen. And not because we didn't know what to do as followers of God. We lost the culture because we watched it happen. We became an audience. We became spectators in this thing called spirituality. We settled for convenience instead of working. We, we decided that it was just going to be easy. And because we were God's kids, we didn't have to work for anything. And yet when you go back to the scripture, what happens time and time and time again? The circumstances get big. Midnight hour, God shows up. He does amazing things because the people are faithful. And the people that see that are the people who are faithful. Those that aren't are those that are afraid. They become an audience. They go away. They go somewhere else. And so what does it take to move from being an audience to an army? Three things. Three ways to see the world heroically. And become that hero in the making that God has created you to be. The first one that I want you to see is I think you have to learn to see heroic horizons. Heroic horizons. You have to remember how God views the odds of the world around you. Verse 2 says this, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me, their own strength has saved her. See, if Gideon had attacked with, 32, with the 32,001, here's what I know would have happened, and God basically says this. They would have thanked God for lending them a hand, given God partial credit for the victory, and then patted themselves on the back for doing the heavy lifting and getting it done. And God says, I don't want that. I don't want them to have that opportunity. I want them to know that I'm the one that did it. Again, I, I know I'm talking about other people, but it begs the question. Are you guilty of giving God partial credit when the credit's all his? You ever done that? 
You ever done something and say, hey, man, thanks, God. I did a good job on that. See, we live in a day and age where that's what most people do when it comes to spiritual stuff. We pride ourselves on being self-sufficient. We pride ourselves on what we think is best. We pride ourselves on what we want to do, and we do it our way. And then we say, hey, God, thanks for helping out and lending a hand there. And we give God partial credit. We think, well, I'm spiritual. I gave God partial credit. But he doesn't have it all. See, what's the old hymn, All to Jesus I Surrender? We've changed the words to, oh, 75% to Jesus I Surrender. Three quarters of myself I freely give. And I'll give him the credit for that, and I'll take credit for the rest. And we have failed to see how when God's at work, our victories defy the odds. And what you have to understand is that God doesn't view the odds at all. See, when we look at something, we say, well, the odds are big on that. It's overwhelming. God doesn't ever think that. I mean, let's be honest. What's overwhelming to God? When you see something big, when there's something in front of you, there's a big challenge, you really think it's big to God? I mean, he's the creator of all things, right? So God doesn't care about the odds. He doesn't care about the size of it. He cares about you. And he cares that you do what it is that you're created to do. God's never faced overwhelming odds. He's never seen a situation that he couldn't win. His focus is on you and how you relate to him. But historically, in church world, this is what people do. And I've always thought it was really interesting because somehow in our spiritual disconnect, and again, I'm talking about other people I know, not you. But sometimes we've been guilty in church life of of, of doing things kind of half-baked. Halfway, almost good enough, as a second thought, and then dared to have the audacity to say, and we did it all for the glory of God. We've lost our minds. See, the church should be the most creative. The people of God should be the strongest. The people of God should have the loudest voices. The people of God should be the best leaders. The people of God should be the ones that are stepping up and stepping into those places where something needs to be changed. And we need to do that, and we have to do the work to do that. But what we're really kind of guilty of is, well, you know, I got a little extra time, I'll give it to God. I have these leftovers, I'll give them to God. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to get too serious about it, but you know, it's all for God's glory. No, it's not. It's for your convenience. See, we clean out the storage sheds of our life and ask God to bless it. Instead of bringing the first fruits into the storehouse and saying, God, take and use it. Why? Because we're loaded with storage sheds. But we like to keep the best for ourselves. We fail to see the bigness of what it is that God wants to do. And so we have to ask God to expand our horizons so we see more. And we can be more than we are. The second thing that has to happen is we also have to engage in heroic conversations. In other words, we need to remix our prayers around the odds. In the Indiana Jones films, some of you will remember the, the, the series of films. In Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which was um, the film that began with um, Kate Capshaw in a red shimmery outfit coming out of a dragon's mouth and singing this song. It was a big opening production number, song and dance number. Indiana Jones gets poisoned in it. Uh, he has to find the antidote. There's fights. There's balloons. It's crazy and it's great. And he and he and uh, Kate Capshaw, the Willie Scott's the name of her character, end up jumping out a window and then falling through um, some awnings, and it's awesome right into a car, and it's fantastic. 
that dress that Kate Capshaw is wearing is really intriguing. And as an actress, she's intriguing because she didn't know how to scream before that movie. Go back and watch that movie and count how many times that woman screams. See, Steven Spielberg taught her how to scream. Now, he says later on, the problem is he taught her how to scream because the other thing that happened at the end of that movie is he married Kate Capshaw. So he taught her to scream and then he married her. Go figure. So she's the big winner, I think, in the whole thing. But the dress that she wore was priceless. They had borrowed it from somebody. They wanted it to look so real and so authentic. And so when they signed the contract to get this particular dress, they had to sign their lives away and they had to insure it. And it was crazy because they had to take care of it, but they wanted it because the look was so right, and Spielberg was so insistent on it. And so if you go and you watch the movie, you realize that later on in the movie, they're riding on these elephants to, to a palace, and they uh, get tossed off of the elephant. They put a different dress on her for that, but then they went back, and they hung the real dress up on the line that night in the scene where they are uh, by a fire, and there's other things, and there's snakes, and all the things that you would expect. When they were filming that scene, one of those elephants ate that dress. ate the back of the dress out. And so while they're filming, they watch what's going on, all of a sudden someone goes, the elephant's eating the dress. And the word gets back to Spielberg, goes, cut, what? And the elephant's eating the dress. And now they got a serious problem. Because an elephant has just eaten a priceless prop, a prop that they need for the rest of the film. In that film, Anthony Powell, who was one of the costume designers, figuring out a way to repair the dress so they could use it for the rest of the film. So if you ever watch the film really, really close, and you see her walk around in a dress later on in the film, look at it really close, and you can tell that it's been remade. It's been patched. There's some patchwork in that dress. But the bigger problem was it wasn't their dress. And so Spielberg, as he began talking to Anthony Powell, said, what are we going to do about this? And the consensus was insurance will never pay for this. Because in all the things that they had listed on insurance, under act of God and everything else, nowhere was elephant listed. Anthony told Mr. Spielberg, he said, don't worry about it. I think that they're going to cover it. And Spielberg says, why? He says, because you have to learn to have the right conversations. And Spielberg said, what are you talking about? Leave it to me. Mr. Powell went away and he had the right conversations and when they filled out that insurance form and it came to the insurance claim on the garment, what happened to the garment? He wrote, eaten by elephant. And they submitted it, but because they had had the right conversations with the right people who knew it was coming and knew how to handle it, guess what they did? They covered that dress. And that's a silly story except for one thing. You and I have an audience with the creator of all time and space. In every moment, in every situation, we have an open invitation from God to pray and talk to him without ceasing. And no matter what situation we're in, what conversation we're having, that moment can become a God moment. Usually, most of us will pray our prayers And those prayers revolve around asking God to reduce the odds in our favor. We're always asking God to reduce the odds so they go our way. We look at our circumstances and say, don't don't make them so tough, God. Make it better. We see something that's hard and we go, God, that's hard. I I, I really don't want to do that. Can you make that easier? 
We see a situation that seems impossible. We say, God, can you just, make, can you just take that and make that possible for me? Because I can't, I can't do that. And because we don't feel it, because we don't understand it, we don't take the time to comprehend it, we always are using all of our emotional energy to pray and say, God, please reduce the odds in my favor. But what did I just tell you about God? God doesn't look at odds. God doesn't care about odds. God's not overwhelmed by odds. He sees you. Did it ever dawn on you that the situation that you're in may be the very place that God wants to do some of his greatest work in your life because he's put you in the laboratory of the impossible where you have to trust him to make it happen? See, we want God to change the circumstances. He's not interested in that. We want him to change the odds so it looks better for us. Don't worry about that. He's worried about you. And you say, well, if he's worried about me, he'd make it easier. No, no, no. If he was worried about you, he's going to do what's best for you because he loves you. And when you love someone, you do what's best for them. See, we let the culture define love for us. We let how we feel define love for us. We let anybody that will agree with us define love for us. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves sometimes missing out on the fact that faith, sometimes faith, is trusting God in the midst of the impossible odds. See, maybe, just maybe, the impossible odds are our opportunity to discover new dimensions about how glorious and majestic God really is. Maybe the overwhelming is that moment that God has placed you in so that God is getting ready to show you what he can do. And we get frustrated because if we pray and God says no as an answer to our prayers, we get mad. Like somehow God's messed up. I promise you God has never said no to one of your prayers if he didn't have something better for you behind it. But we have to learn to remix the way that we pray. We have to learn to remix the way that we look at things if we're going to be that person that God created us to be. And the last thing I want you to see are heroic optics. Heroic optics. You've got to redo your view of the odds. Verse 17 says this, Watch me, he told them, follow me, leave. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpets, then from around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. I mean, this is the plan. Let's blow trumpets, rattle jars, and shout. You know, come on, shout. Kick your heels up. Shout. Come on now. And that's the plan, right? That's the plan. I was thinking about that miracle speech. To me, the miracle speech is kind of a Gideon speech. I can see Gideon standing in front of his 300, knowing they're getting ready to fight the Midians who are going to wipe them out by all human understanding. I see Gideon giving them trumpets and jars, and these guys are looking at the weapons saying, this, seriously, this is it. And Gideon having to say something to him. This isn't in the scripture, but th- I, would, I think he would say it this way. I think he said, would have said, great moments are born of great opportunity. And that's what we have here tonight, boys. If we fought them with 32,000, they'd win. If we fought them with 10,000, they'd win. But not this fight. Not tonight. Tonight we blow trumpets. Tonight we shout. Tonight we clatter some jars and we'll shut them down and we'll wipe them out because we can. 
because God said so. Tonight, we are the greatest army in the world. You were born to be warriors, every one of you. You're here because you lap water like dogs. You were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. This is your fight. The Midianites are done. All we have to do is go out and take it. And I can see him walking out and shouting, USA, USA. As they all run out and surround. I mean, it's a Gideon moment. And it's a Gideon moment that reminds us that we often think, and we talked about this before, that we, we make God smaller than he actually is. We reduce the size of God to the size of our biggest problem. We're always trying to get God um, to deal with stuff. And, and, and most of our problems are circumstantial. Most are perceptual because God seems really small in most of our eyes. We've allowed God to become small. And all of a sudden, then our circumstances are too big. Our perception of things are just too overwhelming because God's so small. And I want you to know, God's not small. He's not small at all. He'll give us the resources to do the job. He gives us the resources we need to accomplish what he calls us to. He gives us the wisdom to use the resources the right way. No matter how big the project is, when we focus on God. I, uh, as I said, I, I think this has a lot to say for church. I, I, I've been in church a long time. And I const- I, I'm constantly amazed at sometimes how the church stumbles and bumbles when we ought to be at the cutting edge and beating everybody else there. And I know why. As I've watched churches, as I've watched people, we have a problem in the church. Not you, but other churches. We have what I call a meatloaf theology. A meatloaf theology. Now, some of you will know, if you're from my era, what I'm talking about. Meatloaf, singer, who... um, has actually influenced you more than you even realize whether you like meatloaf or not. Um, Anybody with a name called Mr. Loaf, it's got to be good. But Meatloaf sings a song that, well, most of his songs are not appropriate for church use. Um, But if all of life is a biblical illustration, which it is, there's some things that he says that we ought to listen to. And there's something that happens in church time and time again. He has a song called Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. In that song he says, I want you. I need you. But there ain't no way I'm ever going to love you. Don't be sad. Two out of three ain't bad. Here's what I want you to know. Watch people who call themselves followers of God a long, long time. They want God. They want the security of knowing that they're going to heaven. They want to know that God's going to be with them. They're not going to be alone. They want him. They want the blessings. They need him. They need God to come in and rescue them. 
They need God to come and take care of the business that needs to be taken care of when it needs to be taken care of. They want, they need God. But there ain't no way they're ever going to love him. Because if they loved him, if they loved him, they'd live different. If they loved him, they would be different. If they loved him, we would not do some of the things that we do. One of the biggest problems that we have within the Christian culture is we need to learn to love God. And we don't. Because when you love someone, you do those things that are best for them that they need. It's not what we want, it's what we need. And what God has asked us to do is not that difficult. And if you love him more than anything else, your life, your existence becomes about him, not you. You'll be what he wants you to be. But see, we don't do that, right? How, how do we know? Well, I mean, you spent more than an hour in your Bible this week. How many spent time in prayer really taking to God those big things? Not the big things, but asking them the big things. What do you want me to do? How many rolled up your sleeves and started using your spiritual giftedness this week and thought, this is what I'm going to do to grow the church and the body of Christ. This is how I'm going to be that person that God wants me. This is how I'm going to be the best version of myself. How many walked past that giving kiosk this morning and ignored it? And didn't decide that at least 10% was God's? See, and understand what I'm saying. That's low bar stuff. That's the minimal stuff if you want to do what God wants you to do. If we loved him, we'd at least hit the low bar, right? Because we don't hit the low bar. How are we ever going to get here? How are we ever going to be this thing that God has called us to be? How are we ever going to be what God wants us to do? We cannot do it. Oh, we want him. <laughs> I want all the business. Man, I want the blessings. I need him. I don't want to go to hell. I ain't no way I'm ever loving. I just want to live my own life. I want to do things the way I want to do. And we dare to look back at God and say, oh, but God, don't be sad because two out of three ain't bad. And God says, that's not good enough. Two out of three is not okay with God, in case you didn't know. He doesn't want an audience. See, there's a day coming when he'll have all the audience. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. They will see him as he is, and everyone is going to say, he is Lord. He's going to have all the audience he's ever wanted. But what he really wants is you. He didn't die so you could be an audience. He died for you to be an army. And if you're going to be who God has called you to be in this world, in this culture, you've got to step up and decide, that's who I want to be. Bow your heads and hearts. Let's pray together. God, our lives sometimes get so messed up because we get caught up living this thing called life. And it's confusing. It, It gets big sometimes. We're overwhelmed. We don't always get it. We don't always understand it. We don't always see what we need to see. We get confused. We try to make sense of it, but we can't make sense of it. And we get frustrated. And Lord, in those moments, we pray, but maybe the lessons of today, the story of Gideon, It's a powerful reminder of where our focus needs to be. 
And maybe, just maybe, if we could learn that we're not called to be spectators and watch. But we're called to be your children, to roll up our sleeves and move forward and trust and listen and respond, obey. That we might just change the world. We're heroes in the making. And we get to make the decision, the choice, whether to live it or not. There are some who never made the decision to believe and trust and follow Jesus. And Lord, in this moment, right now, in this room or online, I, I pray that they would simply in their hearts say, I, I believe. And I accept your love. I accept your forgiveness. And I want to follow you. With that choice, eternity turns and changes. And so, if they're in this room, I pray that before they would leave, they would drop a note in the given kiosk and says, I want to accept Jesus as Savior. To watch online, I pray they would send us an email to say, I've made that decision. What do I do now? And give us a chance to step in and come alongside them, encourage them, help them, find the ways to grow and find a place to plug in. But Lord, Many in this room, we follow you. And we put our energy in a whole lot of things. We wrap up who we are and, and what we think and what we feel and what we know. And sometimes in doing that, we miss the mark and we don't put our focus on you. And we try to float two-thirds of ourselves instead of all of ourselves. Lord, my prayer this day is that we would decide to go all in and that we would never be satisfied with being anything, anything less, anything less than what you've called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.